Welcome to the 26th episode of the No Degree Podcast. This is your host, Janai Iqbal, and today's guest is Sheridan Claiborne. Where do I start? At the age of 15, Sheridan was accepted into Northwestern University, the youngest person in history to do so. He has always been an entrepreneur. He ran a sneaker reselling business that grows seven figures. He worked at Dropbox as a product manager at the age of 20. He is currently the founder and CEO of Lentable, a fintech company that is revolutionizing the 401k space. Learn how Sheridan challenged ideas to get to where he is today. In this episode, there were some audio issues on my end. I am extremely sorry for that. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. So welcome, Sheridan. Let's go back into your history. So you have a very interesting career. So what do you do now? Currently, I'm the co-founder on a company called Lentable. And high level, what we do is one in four Americans who have a 401k match don't use it. And that's in large part because you've got people making 40, 50, 60k a year who just don't have the money to be able to get that $6,000 match that their company offers. So if you're one of those people who has a 401k match, but doesn't have the money to be able to use it, we will give you a cash advance today so that you can get 100% of your 401k match. And then by the time that that money vests, we'll help you withdraw it. And essentially we'll take as like it's our service fee, 30%. But more importantly, the user will now have 70% of that 401k match that they wouldn't have had before. You guys have to sort of wait like 40 years to collect or how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So the way it works now is essentially we help people do early withdrawals. Even if you're below the age of 60, we actually, we give you the money in six months, once it vests, depending on your company, we'll help you through that withdrawal process. So we'll actually show you like how you take it out of your 401k. There's always questions around like income tax and how that works. And we'll both walk you through that process as well as just like cover all of those fees. So that 70% you're making, you know, that additional $5,000 you'll have in your 401k is entirely yours and you don't owe us anything else on top. Wow, that's a very interesting business model because you're essentially giving money to people who would have never had it. A core thesis to our business is that we want to become the first platform for providing these wealth building cash advances. The way we look at it is, and I know there's a lot of companies that say this all the time, like we're here to make you money and it sounds like a scam, but really like the only way we make money is if we can create new wealth for our users. So because we take 30% of the profit, if we don't make you any profit, if we don't put more money in your bank account, we legitimately don't make anything. If anything, we'll lose money if we don't make you any money. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very interesting business model and it just... Very unique, very forward thinking. So let's kind of take it back. So you've been involved. You have a very illustrious history. You're the youngest person to be accepted into Northwestern, right? As a 15 years old. And I know your entrepreneurship, right? Someone, you're only 20 years old at the time of this podcast. So you've obviously started early. So what was the first entrepreneurial thing you did? For me, it was always just like, you know, I, I kind of grew up in like a upper middle class community, but had parents who were much more kind of like middle income. While I wasn't necessarily kind of like disadvantaged growing up, I was always kind of with my buddies and they were getting like Chipotle and food and stuff like that. And I was always like, ah, shit, like I can't afford that. So for me, when I was young, the whole idea of entrepreneurship was, I don't want to say to feed myself in the sense that like I didn't have food, but like it was like, wow, I really want to be able to buy Chipotle, but I don't have the money to get Chipotle. So like, let's go make some Chipotle money. The first startup I ever did, I was just 
selling just like random stuff when I was like 11 and 12. I'd go outside of like, we had this uh, local grocery store and I'd just post up outside of there for like eight hours. And I'd just talk to like anyone who would talk to me about trying to do it. I think like even before that, uh, have you ever been to Jamba Juice by any chance? You know, like the juice store? Yeah, Jamba Juice, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is expensive, uh, man. That's more than Chipotle money. No, it is. No, no, yeah, okay. So, so funny enough, funny enough, I, it was it was wildly expensive, but I love Jamba Juice. It was like crack to me, uh, and they used to have this thing. It's very nebulous if you can define this as a startup. It was really just me hustling at the Jamba Juice, but essentially, every time you made a purchase, they give you a receipt, and on the receipt, if you fill out a survey, essentially, like it'll have like, a code. You go to their website, fill out a survey. And if you fill out the survey, you'll get a buy one, get one free on your next Jamba Juice. So my whole thing is I would wait at Jamba Juice. Someone would make a purchase. I would be like, hey, is it cool if I get your receipt? They'd be like, all right, I guess. Why not? And then I would fill out the survey. And then I would wait for the next person to line and be like, hey, like I know you're buying a Jamba Juice. Is it cool if I just use this receipt for you? Because I have like a buy one, get one free. And that was my way of just like getting myself a lot of Jamba Juice because I wanted Jamba Juice. <laughs> it was just like trying to hustle on like the side of a Jamba Juice store. What came next, right? So obviously we all have those creative ideas where we're like, oh, wow, we're, I'm getting like a $6 smoothie. What came next for you? I did a lot of different stuff like that between the age of like 11 to 15. It ended up like graduating a little bit of like I did some stuff on RuneScape, which was just the online game. I would like sell gold. I would create like a marketplace for it ended up having a bit of my foray into kind of being like a drug dealer when I was like 13, 15. But really like the first kind of serious startup I ended up working on was when I got into college. So got into college at 15. How'd you get into college at 15? Like you must have been not only hustling, you were definitely hitting the books. Yeah. So I had a, I had a probably a somewhat different experience with school. So for me, I didn't graduate kind of any grades when I was younger. If anything, I almost got held back when I was in third grade because I was struggling to read and write. But for me, what ended up becoming kind of like a driving force behind school was that I remember kind of like it was yesterday. I math was like the one subject that I like I was okay at. And I remember one year, this was in like third or fourth grade, I was like sitting in class. There was this new kid who had came into our class and he had just like skipped up like two grades. Super, super smart guy. Uh, and I remember he was reading like a geometry book. So I go up to my teacher, I'm like, hey, what's he learning? And my teacher just offhand made this comment like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, he's special. You'll get there eventually. And I don't know what it was about that comment, but it legitimately drove me insane. Like, it's all I could think about. The fact that this teacher just thought this kid was like fundamentally better than me just drove me nuts. So like that day, I literally I went to the library and I just picked up every math textbook I could. And I don't mean like I had like a, you know, I didn't have a plan. Like I literally went there. And I picked up calculus and algebra trig and like pre-cal and like multivariable calc and like discrete mathematics. So when I was in like third or fourth grade, I was just like sitting there. And I think the first book I tried teaching myself was calculus. Had no idea what I was looking at. I hadn't learned algebra yet. And I was trying to do like multivariable level calculus. And for me, I was just like so frustrated that like this teacher just like thought that this kid was so much better than me. So I, and, and this is, Probably not the best thing to do, but I would literally take these books to class every single day. And like half the time, I had no idea what I was reading. I was literally looking at, you know, in the same way that I'm sure a lot of people look at multivariable calculus right now was the exact same response I had to looking at multivariable calculus when I was in fourth grade. I did not know what I was reading. But to me, I was like, screw it. Like, I'm going to have to force it into existence. By the time I was in fifth grade, 
that was like the first time you kind of get into middle school, start looking at your classes. And I kind of told my teacher, I was like, I know I'm putting uh, pre-algebra right now, but like, I know this, like I've already taught myself this. Can I just test out? And by the grace of God, she was like the sweetest woman ever. She's like, yeah, if you can pass this test, like the end of the year final we give, you can take algebra this year. And that was like, for me, what felt like the first big break I had, like the first real opportunity I had to show to my teachers, like, no, like I I can get this stuff. Like I I can figure it out. So I ended up passing the test, got into algebra. And then that summer I was like, I can kind of just use this framework for everything I do preceding this. Uh, So I ended up teaching myself geometry and algebra two trig. So the following year when I was in seventh grade, I came to the high school. So now I was taking pre-calculus. And then from pre-calculus, by the time I was in eighth grade, I kind of did the same thing with similar subjects. I was like, hey, if I just teach myself this stuff over the summer and, you know, after school, like I can just skip all these classes. So by the time I was in eighth grade, I was essentially full time at the high school. I was doing um, like AP physics and calculus. And for me, it was less so born of like a natural passion of learning. Like I definitely found the subject matter fascinating. But for me, I still always kind of felt like the underdog. I was always just like so frustrated that like, even when I tried to show this stuff, like even coming into high school, I had all these detractors who were like, this kid can't do it. You know, you're not able to move through classes like that. And to me, I also never got the concept of why you have this like four year structure to school anyways. I was like, why should I be in high school for four years? Like, why isn't it two years or one year or a year and a half? Or why isn't it a variable amount of time? And I think when I asked my teachers about that, they never gave me an answer that I liked. They're like, it's four years because it's four years. And I was like, well, that seems like an arbitrary number. Like, why not just put me in high school for eight years? Like, what's the difference at that point? So I, I think to me, those were like the two big driving factors behind why I ended up kind of deciding to skip school and, you know, graduate early from high school. So now, what was your thing of going to college? Like, how did you make that happen? Like, I'm pretty sure, like, did they even allow you to apply normally or do you have to make phone calls to be like, I want to apply? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, uh, since I was essentially treated as like a college graduate, I mean, not a college graduate, I was treated as a high school graduate because I legitimately graduated from high school. So I kind of just applied. And also, I should I should probably clarify, uh, I, there's no way in hell I would be in the position I'm currently in if it wasn't for my dad. Like, a lot of the kind of learning was self-driven for sure. But my parents and my dad in particular, he was the one person through it all fully believed me. Like I've legitimately never met anyone in the world who believes in me as much as my dad did. Back in second and third and fourth grade, when I was legitimately like not a well-performing student, I was having, I was struggling at reading. I was really struggling with math. You know, I even had a speech impediment while I was having trouble speaking. My dad just through and through it all. He's like, Sheridan, not only can you be the smartest kid here and can you kind of accomplish uh, amazing things? But if anything, it was almost like it was an expectation, which at first kind of materialized. And like we had a lot of fights. There was a lot of pushback all the time. But I think to me, it was really important because it's like a lot of parents believe that their kids can do anything. But it was almost like my dad believed like I should like it was fully within my uh, my ability and my power to make it happen. And if I didn't make it happen, that was on me. And I actually think that was like incredibly impactful growing up just because through it all, through all the faults, through all the fuck ups, through all the times in which I wasn't doing well at things, his conviction stayed steadfast. And he was just that rock that made it so much easier to just like feel confident that, you know what, why can't I graduate from high school at 15? Why can't I get into Harvard at 13? 
why can't I do all these things by this age? These are all just like, you know, arbitrary constructs set by people who don't have good justifications behind the constructs. Okay, interesting. So now let's talk about more of the, so you obviously spent a lot of time in the books, but you also did a lot of things, right? You hustled, you did different things. So what was the, what was the big thing that you did? That the first big startup, right? That, you know, more than Jamba Juice, more than Chipotle. Now this is like, I could actually buy a PlayStation or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First big startup for me uh, came in the form of sneakers. So essentially I had a couple buddies who were buying Yeezys, which are essentially these like $200 shoes from Kanye, flipping it for like a thousand bucks. And I just thought that was fascinating. I was like, that's nuts. Like the fact that you can like, you know, all they were really doing is they were like waking up early in the morning, like 9, 10 a.m., constantly refreshing the page, trying to buy the shoes. Uh, and then once it went live, they would check it out. And I'm like, wow, holy crap. Like you're able to make like 800 bucks in like an hour, which at the time was like, I don't make 800 bucks in like six months. So that sounds like a cool opportunity. I think the one thing we brought to the table that like other players in the space weren't doing it is, you know, there were already people who were like putting together bots. It was something that had probably been around for five years. And I actually had some friends who were kind of running those things as well. But my question was like, well, if you can do it with one pair, you know, if you've got thousands of these kids that are buying five of these pairs of piece, why can't you just buy 5,000 of these pairs? It sounds like all you really need to do is just like scale up the infrastructure, get access to some of the money. And there ended up being a lot more complexity than what I initially thought. But that was the thesis. It was like, you can already do this at a small scale. You can make good returns at a small scale. Why not just do 100x that? So starting at like 15, 16, I actually raised my first quarter of a million dollars to be able to buy out these shoes before they sell out online. How long did you run that? Yeah, so that business is actually uh, still in operation. I think, you know, throughout the course of it, um, we've sold probably... 10,000 shoes, 10, 20,000 shoes. And that business has, has gone through kind of massive ups and downs as well. You know, there were times where it was like, holy shit, this is all the money I have in the world. And you might lose money on this. Like, am I going to be like, not bankrupt, but like heavily in debt? You know, and there was a lot of opportunities where it was like, oh, wow, like there's actually, you know, tickets, apparel, like Kylie Jenner lip kits used to be a really big thing. There was like all these kind of different verticals we ended up going into. So, your dad was a driving force, right? What were some other forces that really helped you? My dad was a huge one, for sure. Just like an incredible level of belief, incredible level of support that just like through it all was always kind of instrumental. I think a big thing too was like coming into college, uh, there was this community called The Garage. It was like a started incubator that existed in Northwestern. And for me, I almost always kind of found solace there. When I was first coming into Northwestern, it was kind of hard to like fit in and hang out and like meet people as a 15-year-old. And while I'm like, I'm someone who's like relatively naturally extroverted, there were definitely a lot of times I was like kind of down in the butt dumps, didn't really feel like I had anyone to hang out with. And to me, like startups is almost what I always found myself just like settling into when I felt uncomfortable. It was like one thing I always felt that I could control and could always work on and like take my mind off of all the other stressors in the world, which I know is somewhat atypical because normally it's seen as like, you need to escape from the stress of startups. But to me, that was like startups were my safe haven from the rest of the stresses. And yeah, I think the community there was incredible. It was just like a lot of people working on a lot of interesting startups and a lot of interesting pathways. And to me, that was always kind of like incredible to be able to chat with those people. And then even the people I worked with in kind of the sneaker business, uh, a lot of the kids I was working with were my age, if not younger, people who were like 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, who are all totally different parts of the world with, you know, a lot of whom I've never even met in person before, but we had worked together over this like long period of time. And they were kind of like similar to me. Like they were always hustling, 
always looking for some kind of different deal or different thing to work on. And for me, that just kept me really busy. Like it just gave me something to do, which is really important. You know, it's funny. So I've resold sneakers and two of my business partners have resold sneakers. Obviously, we didn't do the 100X, right? But, you know, it is a very interesting community. And it now it's like dominated by bots and all that stuff. It's almost near impossible to get it manually. I apologize. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Look, you have to do what you have. I wish I met you through those communities. So, yeah. So you went to you went to school and you kind of mentioned, it's like, how was it being a 15-year-old? Because I know it's like everybody's 18 and... You know, there are certain things they're like, all right, we don't want to have the 15 year old around during our party, right? Yeah. I mean, it was me. like for me, I'm the kind of person where it never threw me off. But that's just because I kind of like environments like that. You know what I mean? Like I had gotten that experience already in high school. Like I started going to high school when I was in sixth grade. And that was when like I certainly hadn't grown yet. and was a lot less mature. I mean, granted, you know, by the time I got into college at 15, I was still 15. So I wasn't that mature. But certainly when I was 11, I was a lot less mature. So if anything, I almost already kind of went through those growing pains back when I was in high school. And to me, I kind of fell back on that same story of like, I don't get why everyone here is the same age. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And like, what I used to always tell people is like, look, I know kids who are 12, who are a hell of a lot fucking smarter than I am. And I know a lot of 30 year olds who I'm a lot smarter than. So like, I don't understand why this is only a community of people who are like 18 to 22, because people progress at very different times. There is a lot of way, different ways in which people grow. And to me, it doesn't conform to the same like rigid structure that school is in. So you've always sort of rejected structure, right? You've always sort of rejected or the idea that everything has to be structured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm someone who, and this is this is probably to a fault, but I'm someone who has a very natural inclination to just question things. And sometimes that can manifest itself in a good way of like, now I'm like working on these startups in industries that people wouldn't necessarily think of because I'm open to kind of just like questioning things that people typically wouldn't. Uh, but that also has certainly manifested itself in a bad way of now it can be contrarian to a point where I'm just like disagreeable. I'm like constantly like, no, that doesn't make make any sense. So I think especially when I was younger, if anything, I've almost had to reel that back in a way. Because, you know, when I was 15, I would like someone would tell me anything and be like, that's fucking bullshit. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's like, prove it. Show me the data. Show me the statistics. If you can't, okay, then fuck that. Like, and if anything, I've almost, you know, as, as I've kind of, well, matured, I, I've tried to reel that back in a bit. Okay. So you obviously went to college, but you decided to drop out, right? Or not finish. What was the reasoning? And, you know, you also worked at Dropbox, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, my, my kind of progression through college was uh, was starting on the sneaker business. That was going well. I was lucky enough to be in a position where we were actually kind of making money from that. I had done a bunch of startups in between. I was working on a private equity startup that gave non-accredited investors access to private equity funds. I was working on a tattoo marketplace where we built a marketplace for tattoo artists, people looking to get tattoos. And I think for me, like, I was kind of in a position where it's like, I had kind of stopped going to classes back in like sophomore year. Granted, I don't want to make that seem like it was just like some of it was just like laziness and not wanting to go to classes. And then the other side was just like it was hard for me to understand the benefit. I felt like a lot of the times I was going to these classes, I was hearing like regurgitated material through a lot of the lectures. And for me, it probably it just wasn't the best fit. I felt like the kind of people who I wanted to like work with and commingle with were the people during startups. And I didn't necessarily find those people in the classes that I was kind of working in. 
so yeah, I ended up kind of uh, leaving uh, like my, my senior year. And that was to take on my company Slate Tattoo full-time, where we were building that marketplace for tattoo artists. How, how's that going for you? Did it end up working out? Would you, what do you have to say about that? That was probably one of the most fun companies I've ever worked on. So, so I, as you can probably tell, I've worked on a lot of companies uh, and a lot of them failed. I, was, I worked on built a company called Follower Stock, where we were building like bots that would help people get more followers online. I think we did like 50 to 100,000 in sales. And then it was just like too hard to manage over time. So I shut it down. And I think with us, with Slate, which was the most recent startup I did to Lentable, that was actually, it, it, was, it was really kind of interesting. Uh, I think what ended up happening there was we'd worked on it for about six months. Uh, we had gotten uh, partnerships with two artists. We had probably done about like five, 600 tattoos to the platform. The biggest thing that kind of came to a head though is with my two co-founders. They both graduated from Kellogg Business School and we were in this tricky spot where I just couldn't really convince them to join it on full time. So like we talked about it for the longest time. And I think to me, that's when I realized like just how important it is to have co-founders with just like aligned views. Because I didn't even necessarily blame them either. Like they were in very, very different parts of their life. They had families, were moving to new places, were older, had expenses. And at first it was really hard for me to like rationalize that. I was like, guys, like it's a startup. Just like go for it. Like who cares if you have a job? Like you'll be fine. You know, we'll make it work. So yeah, that, you know, essentially they both ended up kind of like uh, continuing on with their full-time job after business school, which is why I ended up going to Dropbox, uh, where I was kind of a machine learning PM. So I started there August 27th on my 20th birthday. And the plan was just like, I'll meet a couple cool people here. I'll be able to hire and find my co-founder for this tattoo business. And I'll go right back into it. And it was actually funny. The way I met my co-founder for this business was because I was talking with my manager at Dropbox. I was like, yo, like... Let's do a startup together. That's <laughs> um, funny. Like you can come on my co-founder for Slate. We can make it work. It'd be great. And then he ended up introducing me to Mitchell, who's my now co-founder for Lentable. And the guy is just like by far and away one of the best people I've ever met. Like incredible background. He's worked on some really cool companies. But I think more importantly, he just genuinely cares so much about financial inclusion and accessibility. And he grew up in Dayton, Ohio, in like a low-income black community. And just like being able to help serve the people in Dayton, Ohio, and his passion towards legitimately trying to help those people was super inspiring. Incredibly lucky to have him as a team member. What are some like mistakes to avoid, right? Because you, despite being 20, you have a lot, you've gone through a lot, right? You have like experience of some people who are like 40 plus. So what are some like mistakes that you probably would have, you know, told people to, or, you know, going forward, you're like, hey, I'm not going to do that again. I would say one would be I never understood the benefit of relationships and companies before. I always thought like networking was bullshit. There was no reason to do it. I think over time I've seen how it's like just like being part of communities of people who are working on startups and people to bounce ideas off of are all super, super important. And like surrounding yourself with people who care about you and who you respect and admire is super, super helpful. And certainly when I was first starting, like I came into it with such a like, like, hey, if you're not going to help me right now, like, fuck you, I'll make it happen. You know what I mean? And I, I think like over time, I've, I've tried to change that mentality. And I think that's been really helpful. And I think for me, I, I'd almost say like, there's, you can kind of knock down any door you want. I think like, even when I was younger, I still had trepidation about like, can I hit up the CEO of this company? Like, will they take me seriously? And I think like the biggest thing I've realized over time after hearing no from a lot of people is like, that's the worst thing they can ever say to you. 
a lot of the times when you're starting businesses, especially if you're someone who's in high school, who's in college, and you know, if you're someone who's like privileged enough to can take a little bit of chance, like there's no reason not to. Like worst case, you try a company, you give it your fucking all, the company implodes. And now what? You don't have a company? That's exactly where you were like six months ago when you didn't have a company. That's almost the biggest thing I've kind of come around to. It's almost like I feel like there's so much less downside to what I'm working on. You know, especially when you're early on, I think that's actually a huge advantage. Like before you graduate from school, before you have a family, before you have kids, you're actually in a position where you have nothing kind of holding you back. Like you can mess up multiple times in a row, give it your absolute all, and there's no real downside. If anything, you'll pick up all these skills along the way and be able to understand what you don't want to work on next. So like what your best skill sets are. So yeah, I'd say that was a big thing for me. Just like actually trying as many things as you possibly can now. And don't be worried about people saying no to you because that's fine. Was there ever a time the lack of college degree sort of held you back? In my position, no. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that I was in like a, like, you know, I, I had interned at Goldman and JP Morgan. I also didn't always say I didn't have a college degree. Like when asked, like, where'd you go to school? I'd say where I went to school. If you're inferring that I have a college degree, okay. Like, so I'm also cognizant of the fact that I was in a probably a position of, of a lot more privilege than a lot of people who don't have college degrees have. So I could certainly see how it certainly could have served as a problem, especially for like when I was interning at JP Morgan and Goldman. Like if I didn't say that I was like at Northwestern, there's almost a 0% chance I would have gotten either of those internships. And I do think those internships were really helpful with both like legitimizing me when it was when it comes to talking with investors, as well as just like, sometimes it's just nice to have like a perspective shift like, you know, for me, startups certainly hasn't been like an all up and up. There's been a lot of bumps along the road. There's been a lot of times when I've hit a rut, don't have the motivation, don't have ideas for what to work on, aren't kind of passionate about what I'm doing or like have conviction in myself and things like that are kind of helpful to pick up skill sets. Have you sort of ever felt insecure about not having a degree? Now, not really. Because I think I can I can say it is like, ah, you know, I dropped out to do startups. I'm really young. If anything, you can kind of, uh, you know, I make that part of my story. With that being said, let's just say this company fails and the next company that I work on fails. And I'm in a position where it's like, shit, I need to get a full-time job. That could be a legitimate problem. Like I could have companies where it's like, hey, you kind of look like you're a startup person. You kind of look like you just quit stuff. You don't even have a college degree. Like, why would we hire you? Which I could understand. So I'd say if, if I was, if I end up being in a position like that later on, which obviously I'm actively trying to avoid, I could, it's something I would certainly think about. Okay. Uh, I think you'll be okay. You have enough experience. And hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> and sneakers, people still buying sneakers. So that's the that you have. If you don't mind me asking, so how much does like a product manager at a, like a company like Dropbox, like what's the ranges? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to kind of tell you exactly what I was making there. I made uh, 120,000 base with 100,000 stock over four years and a 30K signing bonus. So my all-in pay was like 160 or 170,000. Okay, okay, cool. So you really reinvested a lot of the money, I assume? Yeah. So I actually, I was only at Dropbox for some context on that timeline. I started at Dropbox on August 27th, which was my 20th birthday. And I quit in December or January. So I was there for about four or five months. Okay, okay. Interesting. So that, that was quick. When did you start Lentable? Yeah, so I started Lentable back in January. So the company is about four or five months old right now. You left Dropbox because you were going to work on Lentable or was there something else? Yes, yes. So the, the plan when I came to Dropbox about two months in 
Love the people, love the culture. Everyone was super sweet. It was just clear that it wasn't necessarily the right fit for me. I kind of just had too much of that startup itch that I had to that I had to scratch. So about like two, three months in, I was like, all right, like I probably should leave this place and go back into startups. The initial plan was to like continue working on the company slate, you know, find a co-founder in San Francisco and then keep working on that. And at the time, I was just like toiling around with this idea of damn, like there's a lot of people at this company who don't use their 401k match. And I didn't really get it. I was like, this this really seems like free money. Like Dropbox will just give you $6,000 if you put 6,000 into your 401k. But I know like five kids that I've already talked to here that aren't doing it. So then when I met my co-founder Mitchell, we probably met back in like November, December. We were just talking about the idea a bunch. We're like, you know, why is this? Like, is there a way that we could solve this problem? Uh, Is there something that we're missing? And then it kind of came to a point where it's like, nope. As far as we see it, this is just like a massive unserved opportunity. If you can serve this population, you can build a lot of wealth, which will really help them out. And I think for me, what ended up being the catalyst of quitting is my initial concern was actually like, ah, shit, like I don't want to jump into a company where I'm not really motivated to work on it. So while I was at Dropbox, I was like, got it. I'm just going to put in, you know, I'm going to go really hard with Dropbox. I'm going to do a good job. And on top of that, I'm going to do as much work on LendTable as I can. And when it got to a point where I was doing like 100 hours of work a week, and even still, I was like, damn, there's more stuff I could be doing for LendTable. I was like, all right, it's clear. Like, I'm just going to have to stop doing Dropbox. Because uh, it was just clear that that's where my passion was. Um, and that's what I was interested in doing. Let's go back to the secret industry. How has that industry changed over time, right? Because I remember, look, when I was in high school, bots were like, did not exist. You actually have to just wait, camp out. Right. <laughs> and you have to wait and then you have to know which stores had them and there was a limit. So how has that industry changed over time? Because now the bots are so much more competitive than they were before, right? Now the they're like limits to the amount of bots you can buy. And it's like the people are the kids are very amazing programmers. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean it, it's fascinating what's been just like seeing how the kind of uh, industry has changed over time. I mean, you started with like people not even recognizing that there was a sneaker industry. You know what I mean? Like you got a lot of these like Wealthy investors who look at it, they're like, ah, that's just what a bunch of like street kids from like the South side of Chicago do. Like, that's not a real thing. And now you've got companies like StockX and Goat that are both billion dollar plus companies. And on top of that, you also see this massive kind of supporting wave of a lot of streetwear, even things like collectibles, and also just like a resurgence and just like the amount of people who are interested in it. So like, not only has the resale price of a lot of the stuff gone up, it's also just so much more accessible. Like, whereas five years ago, a limited release might have meant a thousand pairs. Now, a limited release could be a, you know, a place like Nike or Adidas coming out with like 20 to 30,000 pairs. So it's just like the actual, the overall size of the market, the amount of people who are interested in it uh, has just skyrocketed. And I think a lot of that kind of came in tandem with like Instagram and Twitter, where essentially the ability to share the outfits that you're wearing, the kind of clothes that you're interested in being able to talk about all these releases and all these drops and what's hype has just exploded the amount of interest in like the actual sneaker community as a whole. Wow. No, I mean, I've seen it. It's just great, kind of crazy how, you know, people make a lot of money. I've seen, yeah, the, the resale price, some sneakers you get, it's like gold, right? It's like- oh yeah. Yeah. And just like, even the way that they opt, I mean, like brands like Supreme are fascinating too, just because like the way that they actually optimize the hype for it is very, very, very calculated. Like this is a business where it's like, it seems like they're leaving all this money on the table, but the reason they do it is because it actually bolsters the rest of their brand. I think what makes it so fascinating is that 
there's no intrinsic value to a lot of these shoes. Like when Yeezy comes out with a new shoe, it's not functionally any better than any other preceding shoe. If anything, it's less wearable. But it almost starts to derive its value from the fact that it's so limited and so sought after. And I think I don't want to speak on behalf of Nike and Adidas, but the way it really seems is that they're coming into it with like, we're actually going to make it so the value of these items is the exclusivity, which bolsters the rest of the brand. Because now people are like, shit, if I don't buy this product right now, I'm not going to be able to buy it again. If I don't buy it right now, I'm going to have to pay $500 in the aftermarket. And for them, all they need to do is just like a slight rechange on like a retool on the color or the type or like the silhouette. And functionally, it's the same thing, but they're able to just like release so much more by actually limiting the supply, which is like a fascinating concept that like it like totally goes against supply and demand because you're not, you know, you're increasing demand by increasing the price and decreasing the actual supply of what you're offering, which is really interesting. No, it's very interesting because, you know, a lot of the money doesn't even go into Nike, but, you know, right, because they're not capturing the resale value. But that essentially is a part of their marketing. Yeah. When I was pitching this company to people when I was younger, that was a big question. It was like, wait, why did, like, why wouldn't Nike want to just take all this value? And they don't. Like, they actually want their shoes to resell for as much as possible because that's just publicity. Like, when you talk about, like, Nike Off-Whites, they've probably released, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000 pairs across all of the off-white lineup with Nike. But every single person who's into sneakers knows of them. It has generated so much hype, so much publicity. And at the end of the day, these are still shoes that they're selling for 200 bucks that they're producing for $10. So they're still making a lot of money. But more importantly, now Nike is the super cool, super hip brand that brings all of these clicks and all of these websites visits that bolsters the rest of their massive product lineup that allows them to sell millions upon millions of pieces of inventory every year. Yeah, I mean, it's very subtle because Nike definitely has, they know, they know how much it's selling for. They oh, know, no, hey, yeah, I got Yeah, it's not like they're like, oh my God, whoa, this resold? We had no idea. Like they have so much data, they have so much information. Like they fully know that this stuff is going to resell, which is why they, like, they want it to resell. Yeah. So now let's go back. So you recently, I think you raised like $15 million for Lentable. Yeah. So for Lentable, uh, you know, uh, we've recently did our seed round and then uh, we've also raised kind of like a, a line of debt and then got into YC. Okay. Nice. So how did you go about raising that money? Right. Because you're like, quick, this is where we're already, we're only in May. Right. It's like January, November, you met your co-founder and now all of a sudden you raise money. How'd you go sort of make that happen? I mean, the first thing I'll say is that this is a wildly different space than Chicago. Like when I was thinking of coming out to San Francisco, I'm like, this is great because you can raise all this money and there's all these tech people and all these startups and it'll be like such a good environment. But I didn't really know what that meant until I came here. And when I came here, I was just like blown away by there's so many. And it's almost like the way that they look at companies is so different. Whereas in like Chicago or New York or especially a lot of other states, there's a lot more value investors where essentially they're looking for like, what's your customer acquisition cost? What's your revenue? What's the unit economics of your business? Um, how many users do you have today? Uh, and then like, you know, second thing that they care about would be like, what's your team? And maybe the third would be the long-term vision. Whereas in San Francisco, you almost have that flipped on its head. Uh, like our experience was like, it's almost most relevant. Who's the team? Can they execute? Can they build something incredible? The second is like, what's the vision for what you're building? And then as a third, you find like, 
what is the unit economics of kind of what you're operating on right now and what are you building? And I think that was a really interesting shift for me because it was just a very different way of talking about the company. Because when we were first pitching it, the whole idea was like, let's talk about the unit economics. Let's talk about how much it costs for us to currently onboard a user. Let's talk for all these different metrics. And what we actually found is that what investors were most receptive to is like a high level description of what we're doing. But more importantly, like, how, like what is our path to getting to a multi-billion dollar company, as well as why are we the right team to build that thing? Which to me was a, a very different kind of perspective shift than what I was uh, than what I was expecting when I was starting the fundraise out here. I mean, you you have experience. The team is so important when choosing a startup, right? Because it's like if you don't have that long term vision, right? Co founder battles, right? I mean, yours wasn't too bad, right? Yours was just a disagreement, but some get pretty nasty. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, biggest thing that can ruin a company is is co founders falling apart for sure. You've obviously learned a lot. So, what are you currently focused on learning? Like, what are you still learning about? A lot of the learnings I'm picking up, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm, I'm actively trying to pick up skills, and maybe that's to a fault. But really, what I'm focused on now is just like a lot of things that need to be done for the business. You know, I'm hiring for like real full time employees for the first time. This is also different than the kind of businesses I've ran before. A lot of the businesses I've ran before, like the sneaker business, that was never venture funded. The goal was to never be a billion dollar company, the goal was to make a couple million bucks. Cool. Like, you know, th- that, that was the vision. And here, it's about like creating the foundation for building the product and onboarding these users and putting us in a position where in you know, a year, we have this much so we can raise on this and we can build a much larger organization. So I think that's been one of the biggest things for me to like, get my head around is like trying to understand like what does it actually mean to build one of these like longitudinal, longitudinal businesses and having this like very long-term vision for growth and execution and also balancing that with like what do we need to actively do day-to-day to keep the business afloat and kind of chugging along well. What is like the dream? What is, you know, for this company or just even yourself, like what's the dream? Like this is when you know, hey, I've made it with this company, right? This is, you've obviously got past the first hurdle of raising a lot of money. You've got in the Y Combinator. What's like the next big hurdle and what's sort of the end goal? Especially when it comes to this business, like there's a lot, a lot we need to do. Like we're, we're not even in the first inning right now. Like we're in the first like minute of the game. And now it's all about just like having those first hundred customers have a phenomenal experience, really be able to help them. And, you know, those are obviously like the immediate goals of like, what are we doing in the year? Like build a great product, have a great brand, have users who really, really understand the product and have it really had actually help them. Uh, and then I think like for the long-term vision of what we're building here, really to me, it just all comes back to like, like when I was a kid, one of the biggest things I struggled with was uh, like kind of just like this lack of access to credit and liquidity. Like building the sneaker business was hard because like it required money. And I very well could have made more money for investors if I just had access to it. But because I didn't understand what I was working on, because I didn't necessarily have the connections or live in the right community or have the right upbringing to be able to sell it. Not only did that mean that I missed out on a lot of money, but also I would say what is also detrimental to them is like the people who didn't invest in me kind of had the same thing. You know what I mean? Like there's all this just like value that was left on the table. And I think that I'm an even lesser example of that case. I think you've got all of these kids growing up in these disadvantaged backgrounds where they don't have access to the communities, they don't have access to the networks. And if they could just have some of that liquidity, some of that credit, they could actually build, you know, these massive companies, have access to these great opportunities, be able to like actually kind of like push their their selves and their families along. 
And not only is that great for them, but like if you can make it so if I give you five grand, you turn that five grand into a hundred grand, that's also value I can capture myself. You know what I mean? Like that's a level of wealth creation where it's like, I help make you money, which makes you a lot of money and also will help make me money. So I think like what we look as long-term vision for what we're doing with Lendtable is we want to be the first platform for providing wealth building cash advances. So we're starting with 401k matches as a space because that's $24 billion that are left on the table every year. On average, that's people leaving five grand every single year that they're missing out on. So if we enable, you know, a kid who just graduated from school is making 60K a year in like Arkansas to get his 401k match of five grand, and we continue to provide that value from him year over year over year, he'll now have a million dollars in his 401k that he wouldn't have had before. And I think with that, once you actually unlock that wealth, there's all of these different kind of like disparate avenues you can start going into. There's a broader space of employee benefits. There's like, hey, now that you have this capital, how do you use it to like look at your finances, to pay off student loans, to pay off your mortgage, to better understand like the kind of investment properties that you can actually put it into? So I think for us, that's kind of a long-term vision. It's to be the one central hub, essentially like a bank, but a bank where the only way in which we make money is by being able to actually create and build wealth for our users. What advice would you sort of have for people going forward? Like, you know, especially... I think you could really impact a lot of like young people. What advice would you have someone who's like, you know, 10 to 15? Like, what would you say, you know, to get started on, right? Whether it's the receipts or something like that. I think for me, like the, the best way to figure out is just to do it. There's a lot of advice you can get from a lot of people and that's all great. I think what's most important though, is like, if you have an idea, even if it's a shitty idea, which it probably will be, I've gone through like 10 shitty ideas at this point. And who knows, maybe one of those shitty ideas will get lucky and it'll work out, but just work on it. If you've got an idea for a product, draw out the product, try to figure out how to build it. If you don't know how to build it, look at classes online to figure out how to do it. If you've got an idea for a store or a restaurant, learn and work with the people who do it. And I think the biggest thing is just like, if your concern is like, ah, I don't have this this skill set or I'm not old enough, you can just go for it. You know what I mean? Like if you don't know how to code, you can teach yourself how to do that. So yeah, I would just say like start as early as you can. And especially if it's something you're passionate about, like why not go for it? There really is no downside. You know what I mean? Like going like, I, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who have tried doing startups for a handful of years and it's never worked because at the very least they've gone for it. They've given their best effort. They put in the time and eventually just by pure chance, you know, like there's that statistic that it's like only like 10 or 20% of startups work out. Well, if you do 30 startups, one of them is bound to work at one point. You know what I mean? You could almost just like throw a nut, like, and I think that's almost an advantage of being young. Like when you're 15 years old, you can do five failed startups in a row. You're 20 now. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're fine. Like you can, you can do anything. So it's almost like, you know, the earlier you start, the quicker you start doing it, there's just, there's like no reason not to. What was the shittiest idea you worked on? I mean, I've done like a lot of illegal ideas. <laughs> try, try, try to handle those. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the shittiest idea I've done. Because I know I've had ideas at like 15 that sound so great. And you look back, it's like, yeah, I don't know why I thought that. So I had one that was like a little insane. I, 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 didn't, I never really did too much on it, but I, I thought it was pretty dope when I was thinking of it. I was, uh, <laughs> I had this thing where I was like, wouldn't it be dope? I, I think I was like working out when I was like, I don't know, I was, must have been fucking young. Like probably like 14, 15. And I was like, fuck, like treadmills suck. Like I don't want to be on a treadmill. Uh, but then I was like, oh, but I need to go on a treadmill. And I was like, damn, like, I wish there was something that just like made me go on a treadmill. 
And I was like, what if I just like made a treadmill that would like bolt your feet into the treadmill so you couldn't stop running? Where it's just like you had to. Like if you just like, if you locked into the treadmill, you would just have to be on it for 10 minutes and there was no way to get off. And it would just like force you to do it for 10 minutes. And I thought that was like the greatest idea. And you know what? I take that back. That's still a good fucking idea. Someone should know that. <laughs> it is definitely a cool idea. A lot of variables that I wasn't thinking of, but I'm like, that would just be great. Because it's like, I, this is something like I want to do, but I just don't want to do it right now. And I wish there was something that would just like force me to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what's your idea making process? Like, it just seems like you have an idea and you kind of map it out. Yeah, I mean, it, it can come from... A lot of it's like, a lot of it comes from like, just like frustrations I've had. People I've talked with, people working on interesting ideas, interesting marketplaces. Like for the 401k business, I was like, started off by being confused. I didn't get why my friends weren't using their 401k match. Then I got frustrated. I'm like, okay, I think I get why they don't use their 401k match, but that's a shitty reason. Like that kind of sucks. These are people who like losing like six grand for no reason. You know, I think for other business, like the sneaker business, I knew a bunch of people who were like in sneakers. Seemed like a problem. I, I had questions around how it worked. Seemed like a cool way to make money. Jamba Juice thing. I wanted Jamba Juice. I was hungry. I was willing to do whatever it took to get Jamba Juice. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I think like, I mean, this is certainly not any novel insight, but I think if there's something that frustrates you or a problem that you see, try to come up with a solution, you know, As, especially if, if you have ideas, someone's the kind of person where it's like they can't think of any ideas. They don't have anything that they want to go towards. Uh, there's actually a lot of great publications. That'll just talk about like all of these different spaces that have all of these different kinds of ideas. Uh, I think there's this one podcast, not podcast, it's like a newsletter where they essentially do like a billion dollar idea every week. Like that's the whole thing. There's this like one dude, he like thinks of an idea for what a company could be. He writes out this like page long description on like what the market is, how you would build a company, what it would be. And it's not like about like previous companies. It's about like what are new companies that should exist that could be worth a billion dollars. So yeah, I just think it kind of come from like any source of inspiration. So yeah. It seems like you read a lot. That's kind of always looking at what others are doing to kind of get inspiration. Yeah, you know, reading a lot. Uh, and I think a lot of it can just come from like your own personal experiences. Like if you have any frustration about something you are dealing with right now and you've thought of some like an idea of a solution, uh, digging into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've worked on before has come with like frustrations or questions or confusion I've had around just like things that I've been dealing with in my own life. Okay, cool. No, I just really want to thank you for your time. And as we wrap up, how would someone get in contact with you if who's listening to this episode? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're welcome to email me at Sheridan at lentable.com. So that's L-E-N-D-T-A-B-L-E. Yeah, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn or Facebook or check us out at lentable.com. All right. So thank you so much for your time. I know a lot of people will get inspired. I see wonderful things for your company and we'll definitely keep in touch. Cool. You're the best. Thanks so much for taking time. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash No Degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D 
last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem. NoDegree.com. Yeah. So, you got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve them. We got this. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in a knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.